Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You're now listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us. I'm joined this week on Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn with two ladies in the studio, or sorry, one lady in the studio. I'm I'm a, I'm a lady, and then I've got another lady over the phone. Uh, introduce yourselves, everybody. Hi, I'm Robin. I'm Alon's wife. Uh, I'm Allison. Um, I'm 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 friends of both of these people. <laughs> So yeah, I brought my wife into the studio this week because uh, we don't have Jimmy. So I need somebody whose shoulder to cry on <laughs> when, thi- when, when things go wrong. Um, he will be back next week. He's been uh, a little bit uh, sidelined. I actually, guys, I had prepared, and it for some reason it didn't show up a like a minute long, I guess, like compilation of times in the past that I've said Jimmy will be back. We miss Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy's not here. Jimmy can't make it with us. This is says compilation. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, uh, he will be back in. Yeah, I'm really grateful that uh, I could have Robin here. Uh, after many years of Robin entertaining Lost and Rewound. Uh, on long car trips. On long car trips. Um, now, here we are. She's now a guest on the show. Allison, you're doing good today? Yeah, 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 I'm good. It's been a kind of a crazy seven weeks. I've had a lot of people coming in and out of the house. And then I'm um, officiating a wedding this week, so... Life is a little crazy, but good. Wait, did you have your officiant license already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just got everything, like, signed and stuff yesterday, actually. But oh. yeah, I have had it for, like, four months. Wow. In preparation mm-hmm. for getting a chance to do the weddings out in New Orleans, no less. Well, one of my best friends is coming to New Orleans to get married, so that's why I got officiated. That's really exciting. And you're going to be yeah, back. I have an outfit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you wear as an officiant? What, how, how, I mean... It's a New Orleans wedding, well, too, so really. I've been looking for a suit, but I can't find a woman's suit. They're very difficult to find, yeah. especially ones that fit well. Right? I'm having a hard time, so yeah. I don't know. And there's really nowhere to shop in New Orleans. Like, there's not, like, you know, I don't know it like I know New York. So I went to, like, the outlet malls last yesterday for, like, two hours, but then I got discouraged. So I bought a bottle of my favorite perfume, and I went to Hagen dazs <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a good solution to the problem. <laughs> it was a good solution. <laughs> uh, Lost and Rewound is coming to you every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. If you want to listen to our past episodes, go to Podomatic or SoundCloud or iTunes. All pretty easy to find. We're on Twitter, on Facebook. And if you want to submit any of your old audio to the show, y'all, uh, Lost and Rewound at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org is the address to go to to pitch us any and all of your ideas and old audio MP3s that you got kicking about. Mm. And if you want to donate to the show, you, can, you, can, you have a few different choices. You can go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash LAR. That will, you could be a direct sponsor that way. And then if you go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash pledge, you're pledging 
any amount of money that you wish to donate to the community as a whole. They are tax-deductible donations, so we are you know, non-for-profit, so anything that you donate to keep us with the financial ease we need in these hard times will hard. be charitable contributions for the yeah. arts. For the arts. For, it, is, it is tax time. It is tax time. And it it's also like weddings time, so, you know... All the that amount of money that you're spending uh, will help get Alice in a suit. Maybe weddings should be tax deductible. They should be. Yeah, they really should. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't like. Come on. <laughs> it could be a little different uh, down there in New Orleans. Maybe uh, weddings can be more uh, for like good purposes, charity. Like we had for presents for our wedding, we people donated to charity. That's true. I didn't get any tax benefits. Hmm. <laughs> Well, <laughs> people who did donate did. Yeah, you got tax benefits for One thing. funny thing about that is that we completely made a, a point to tell everybody we don't need gifts for our wedding, y'all. We just want you to contribute money to uh, the Gray Muzzle organization, which uh, works with senior dogs, uh, and also uh, the uh, Sado Project. Do you want, uh, Robin, do you want to talk a little bit actually about those two? I know that you work pretty heavily with those two organizations. In your yeah, Gray Muzzle, I do their grand review every year because Gray Muzzle doesn't actually hold any dogs. They give money out to various rescue organizations that specialize in senior dogs. Uh, the Sado Project has been busier than ever under the guidance of the amazing Chrissy Beckles. There's a hero for you. Um, they've been rescuing dogs from Puerto Rico after the hurricane and... Currently, I think they're up to 300 dogs so far this year. That's amazing. Flown, oh, wow. from, flown from Puerto Rico to new homes. Pretty wonderful, especially considering that there was already a need for being rehomed before and now more than ever. Uh, not to take away from the humanitarian efforts, but it's an everybody effort. I think there's even more dog rescues that have popped up even since. Oh, there are a lot of dog rescues in Puerto Rico who specialize in getting street dogs off the streets and moved to new homes and also doing a lot of spay and neuter down there which is really important and especially after the hurricane um with so many unwanted puppy litters where could somebody go if they wanted to donate uh an amount of money not just to radio for brooklyn right <laughs> no so if they want to donate money to uh the sato project the or the great muzzle organization sato project is sato project.org and it's gray muzzle like gray like the color and then muzzle like the muzzle on your dog uh, org. ey right not ay ey okay AY is the originally like the British version? Am I making that up? I don't know. That is a Wikipedia. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Question. So we would have to Google. <laughs> In the meantime, we don't have time to do that right now. We have a lot of audio to uncover this week, and that's why Robin is here. to go through my mother's record collection which I had never looked at and you pulled out a random record that had no real cover to it. It was just like in a sleeve. Yeah. And it turned out to be, for some reason no one had ever told me about this a recording of my grandfather's 81st birthday party? 81st birthday party. Because I guess being our family we couldn't actually get it together in, you know, in time for his 80th. So we managed his 81st. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and why this is such a significant find. I mean, my grandfather died when I was pretty young. He was 
born, well, it says on the record, but he was definitely born in the 1800s, which, um, oh. yeah. He was, he was old for the time when he had my mom and her siblings, and my mother was old for the time when she had me. So he died in his 90s, and I was only three, I think, when he died. So I don't have a lot of memories of him. In the small town where my family is from in England called Heswell, which is on the northwest coast of England. And your mother was one of four, and she moved to the States when? I guess she moved in the mid-60s. First, she was in Michigan for a very, very brief period of time. Then she lived in Puerto Rico for a couple of years. And then in the late 60s, she moved to New York City permanently. And your mother is full-blown British to the yep. max, to the max. But you, with your accent, someone who's listening is probably like, <laughs> why doesn't she sound British? We moved permanently to New York uh, after traveling back and forth and other places um, when I was seven. So I think I just acquired a New York accent at that, or some kind of American accent at that point um, just because I was so young. Right. Much to mother's chagrin. Getting back to this record. This record was clearly something that your mother had inadvert either inadvertently or purposefully kept. <laughs> Knowing my mother, a combination of either. The woman had way too much stuff. Was your mother a hoarder? Um, borderline. You you say borderline. My mom was a borderline hoarder. <laughs> your mother was a borderline hoarder. Yeah, for sure. What characteristics uh, led you to believe that? Um, I or. Mean- the, or to know it. things that were always in the house. Like, you know, step over boxes. Yep. Piles of stepping over piles of <laughs> magazines and newspapers and things that have been, yes. should have just been thrown out ages ago, but no one bothered. Yep. Yep. You've, you've got, like, a, a, a enough space that you can allow for such an That issue. is the issue. You'd think in New York she wouldn't have had enough space, but no, she bought a big house and then just filled it with crap. Yeah. And so you've got all these boxes, and the boxes are mostly with, like, magazines and... Credit card uh, bills from 1998. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so it was, true. Oh, my God, that's so true. <laughs> it was fantastic when we went through the house. Like, hmm. So this record was... it. You know, honestly, from my recollection, there were... Well, I put, a, I put all the records in one spot because I'm not really a music... I don't really right. know much about it, so I just put them in one spot for you to eventually look at. Your mother passed away in 2016. And when your mother passed away, I remember we combed through, with the help of your Aunt Thea, who came in from... Oh, yeah, who came from England, and I would never have gotten through the house without her. Like, a day later, when she passed away, like, Aunt Thea just, like, She was on up. it. <laughs> and she was spending... She, was she spent the month helping you clean up the house and go through all the... Clean up as much of the house as you could, um, and go through belongings. And I don't know when we found this. It must have been later. But I always remember underneath the TV in the living room was a record player that was inoperable, and records that were by the dozens. And you couldn't really figure out what one was. But you know, there was the mind to certainly, if you wanted to, go in even while she was alive, and certainly go through there and see, you know, all these classical or jazz records. You know, lots of stuff that um, you could definitely see in an unlooked-at record collection. You mean the record collection of an old lady? Yes. <laughs> I wasn't going to profile, but you... You couldn't use the record player? What? You couldn't use the record player. No, the record player had broken 
probably ten years ago. But and it was like a great kind. It was, of, a, it was a great record. Player. It was like the like the like what was it? We saw it with the same kind of style in an Airbnb. It was like you had the record component, and then it was a AM FM radio, and it was a, a CD, CD player. player. It was nice, it's but at type. some point there had been some incident, and <laughs> water had gone all over it, and. It, yeah, it was beyond repair. It was warped and weird. Oh, nice. But of course, it had never been thrown out like everything else. Even when things stopped working, you just left them where they were. And maybe you got a new one and just put it on top of it. Or maybe you didn't. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so we get the, uh, I got a record player that... Uh, that we did not put on top of the broken one. We threw out the broken one and got a new record player. <laughs> Let's be clear. There was that. a lot of vinyl that I wanted to play, and the one that I had previously had wasn't working, and I was just desperate to find a way to play vinyl. And then we got a chance to play this. So this is called This Is Your Life, and it's from April 16th, 1976. So, yeah, so if someone's good at math, he's 81 in 1976. So, Avi was born sometime in the 1800s. We're going to take a listen, and uh, I guess on Robin's go, we'll uh, stop uh, just, you know, when parts need to be stopped so we can have plenty to talk about. Or if you, uh, Allison, want to chime yeah, in. If you have a question, Allison, about the weird people on this record, I you- can't promise I can answer it, but we can always discuss. This is taking place in Heswell? Yes. In Heswell, there used to be, is no longer there, a large hotel with like, big, um, I guess, like ballrooms. And stuff we used to go there for Sunday lunches and Easter Sunday and so forth. And I kind of imagine it being there um, because at this point, my grandmother wouldn't have been able to get very. It was hard for her to travel. And he was obviously already in his 80s, though he was more active. Um, So I doubt they would have. I mean, maybe they went to Liverpool, but I can't imagine where else they would have gone. In the spirit of Lost and Rewound being the forefront for playing all the old sounds from the yesteryears. Here, we are going to go even deeper to the history of Robin's grandfather on a record from 1976. Let's do this. Cyril Howard Cambridge, this is your life. Cyril, you were born in London on the 16th of April, 1895. A true cockney, having been born in Greycoat Place, within the sound of Bow Bells. You were the third child in a family of ten, most of whom now live in America, with the exception of your brother Percy, who lives in Australia with his wife, Brick. It goes without saying that with so many miles separating England and the New World, your relatives are unable to be present tonight, but we have several messages from them. Firstly, from your brother Percy. So sorry we were not able to be with you, Cyril, on your birthday, and we are trying hard to get over again to see you all. Who knows? It may be sooner than we think. All the words on the card we send you, we send to you in person. God bless. Purse and bring. Now, from New York, your favourite niece, Elva Hines. Hello, Cyril. This is Elva, <laughs> bringing you a happy birthday greetings. I'm thinking of you on this joyous occasion and wish I could be there with you to join in all the fun. However, 
I'm there in spirit and wish you good health, good cheer, and many, many happy returns of the day. If all goes well, Cyril, we may see you this summer. This is your life, Cyril Cambridge. In New York City, where I speak, I know it has been a rewarding one. My thoughts go back to the 1930s and our first meeting during one of your many trips to New York. Alva and I were newly married, and you came to visit us in our tiny one-and-a-half-room apartment. I thought you then a warm and outgoing chap with a vibrant personality and a zest for life. And I still have the same opinion. Now, in your golden years, you're still young, still vibrant, and your charm has not diminished. I love you. Many, many happies ahead. This is Jack. All right, Cyril, now let's let's ham it up a little. Since it's Oscar time in Hollywood and New York, Jack, Steve, and I want to present you, Cyril Howard Cambridge of Heswall, England, with our Oscar for the best performance on life's revolving stage. Oh, ho! <laughs> I have a question about how it was to, were they just all recorded for him to leave it on tape for his birthday? Yes. Yeah, they okay. sent and in. all from different places? Yeah. Um, Elva was living in New York. She lived in New York, I mean, as far as I know, all or most of her life. She was still, she lived for quite some time, actually, and um, I knew her quite well. Who uh, was she? She was the daughter of one of Cyril's brothers. I'm pretty sure. Okay. And he was, as as mentioned, like one of the, one of 10, 12? He was one of 10. Well, one 11. Of... One of them died very, as like an infant, so didn't Jeez, count. So... I guess you don't get counted if you die that young. Um, oh. And so. <laughs> Maybe that's subjective. <laughs> I guess. This is like poop. Um, what number was he in number of 10? Like he, in the middle? No, no. He was, I think, if not one, he was the youngest, if not one of the youngest. Okay. Um, so Elva was, was pretty close to him, I mean, closer to him in age, actually, then, because Elva was the daughter of one of his older brothers. Most of his brothers had moved to America. Uh, I know that some moved to New York, one moved to New Jersey, I think, and then a couple moved to Michigan. And there's a whole, there's still, okay. apparently there's still a whole contingent in Michigan. Where in Michigan? Somewhere near an island that everyone knows. In Michigan, I don't know. I don't know American geography. Not, not in you know. It's not like. Oh my god! Thank God, someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Mackinac, so Mackinac Island. Wait, but you've mentioned oh. we've mentioned Mackinac Island before, right? Because it's much like an island that I visited as a child, but not Mackinac Island. An island in England. An island in England, one of the Channel Islands. Right. Anyway, we can talk about that another time. <laughs> There's so much to talk about Herm Island. Shall we go? We'll keep, keep keep going on then. Oh, yeah. Keep going on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Zill, you have one sister, Edie, living in England. Thanks, she yeah. and her husband, Horry, have joined us tonight. Early age, Zill, your father imbued in you a love of the theatre. Indeed, your father quoted Shakespeare at great length 
and was particularly vocal after an <laughs> evening with the boys. You were regularly taken to the music hall and often met your father's many friends in the theatre. I believe your earliest appearance on stage was that of a stooge for a ventriloquist. When you were about five years old, the idea being that you were to sit under the table, over which was draped a very large tablecloth. From this concealed position, you were to be the ventriloquist's other voice. Unfortunately for the act, the stage was rather dusty. <laughs> Getting hold of the tablecloth to stifle a sneeze, you revealed yourself to the public at last. <laughs> A disastrous start to your acting career, Sir <laughs> When you were eight years of age, you left London and to attend a convent school in Stockport. But you were none too popular with the good nuns being guilty of sketching and drawing chorus girls with high-kicking legs. <laughs> Almost a cardinal sin when you should have been studying. You were also found to be guilty of a very, very wicked attitude to the Bible in that you had the temerity to enhance the reading thereof by the use of dramatic emphasis. At the age of 15, you really felt that it was impossible to continue at the convent school, so you packed your bags and hitched back to London. For a while, you earned a modest living as a lightweight boxer, earning two shillings and sixpence about, even if it was only to let the other fellow win. <laughs> Throughout this period, you were still interested in the theatre and eventually entered a talent competition. You and your partner, Tommy Medlock, were to perform a comic song and tap dance routine, complete with straw hats, blazers and canes. Your partner was struck dumb with strange fright and stood silently by whilst you performed a solo dance, asked and answered your own jokes and rounded off... <laughs> Rounded off the performance with a rendition of, of If You Wore a Tulip. <laughs> After this second inauspicious start in the theatre, you joined a, a juvenile troupe and also the Eton Boys and Girls, with whom you toured the country. After a while, you decided that pay and conditions were so bad that you must reluctantly give up the theatre in that capacity. During the peri period which followed, you had several jobs, one in particular being that of an assistant in one of the then very popular Lions Corner houses. This job ended rather abruptly, I believe. Having been told to put a freshly made jelly in the sink, you did precisely that and poured it down the drain. <laughs> In 1911, your father died and you decided the time had come for you to do some serious work. You attended night school to study electrical engineering. At the end of the course, you came out with flying colours, being second in all England. Your brother Fred being first. <laughs> you promptly joined Wagle Dotis, but the story goes that your employment was uh, very short-lived. You caused a strike. <laughs> you then joined the army, but again, your service was brief. Within a week, you were discharged. Ironically enough, for poor eyesight. <laughs> you decided to try your skills elsewhere and you moved to Liverpool to work in the aero industry. You also took and passed the 
driving test with the Liverpool Corporation tramways. <laughs> but chances of employment were very few and far between indeed. Disillusioned with the job potential on dry land, you joined the Cunard line as an electrical engineer. And during your years of service with Cunard, you travelled all over the world on such ships as the Aquitania, the Mauritania, the Homeric, and the Georgic. Your brother Alfie recalls the debonair qualities you had when dressed in your uniform, and he distinctly remembers the occasion. On one occasion, you're returning to ship, complete in your naval uniform, braid, cap, silver knot cane, to the manner born. You handle the case to your brother and proudly walked a ship, swinging your cane, while poor Alfie staggered behind, carrying the case. <laughs> For this service, you gave him the princely sum of one shilling. A very, very handsome sum in those days, Cyril. Hi, Cyril. Hope this tape gets you in time for your big day. We both wish you a very happy birthday, and wish we could be there to share it with you. I'm proud to have a brother like you, Cyril. You've come a long way from a very poor start. You have proven that a person can lift himself out of a humble environment and become a talented and kind human being. And this makes us all proud of you. I'm sure the world has been made a better place because you passed through. Helen and I and our family send our very best to you and wish you many years of good health and much happiness. We thank you for all the good times that we have shared together. So we send all our love to you, and also to Thelma, Clive, Jan, Thea, Benedict, and Daniel, and also Edie, Nori, and Sheila, if they're there. God bless you all. You spent a considerable time, Cyril, on the Liverpool to New York run. This was very, very attractive to you because it enabled you to visit your family in New York, in particular your brother Jim, who was then manager of the Lowe's Theatre. Here you met many theatrical people, including Bing Crosby. You even appeared with the late Bela Lugosi in Dracula as one of the voices of howling beasts off stage. It was during this period that you met the Tiller girls. And you've never been the same since. <laughs> In particular, Barbara Aiken, from whom we have the following message. Hello, Cyril. Your family very kindly invited me to your birthday party. But alas, I can't leave London just now. So I send my congratulations and hope that you are having a very happy <coughs> birthday. I'm going to take you back to 1922, when you were a bright young officer on the SS Cedric and I was one of 16 lasses going to New York for the first time. We all became friends with you and your brother officers. Oh, and how we looked forward to the ship calling at New York every few weeks, when we could all meet again. I seem to remember it was Cyril who was the life and soul of the party. <laughs> it must have been 40 years before I met you again, Cyril. And you were still running around like a two-year-old. <laughs> and I don't doubt you are still doing the same today. Have a happy day with your family around you. All good wishes, Barbara. Your grandfather was involved in acting and uh, had to give that up for, you know, making actual money. Yes. <laughs> and so he went to school for electrical engineering, and that was his foray into getting into the military. Well, he attempted to get into the military, but failed, apparently. Right. 
Um, because oh. of poor eyesight, which we which find is out, ironic. We find out later because he was an optician. Optician, yeah, later in life. Cyril liked apparently having multiple careers. <laughs> he um he got his electrical engineering degree and went to work uh, on the Cunard lines, which was you know many of the really fancy cruise ships at the time that went across the Atlantic prior to jet travel being something that actually occurred. Mm-hmm. The way you got to New York or Liverpool was to take a boat. Did he end up as an obstetrician? Was that like his last job? Optician, yeah. Yeah, no, that yeah. Co- that gets covered right. later, but um, so a okay. little bit of foreshadowing. Um, yeah, he um he ended up actually creating a pretty successful like multi shop practice in the world, which is um the tiny peninsula off the edge of off of Liverpool above Wales. Let's move on. This is where it gets saucy. Oh, doesn't know. Okay. Yes. Ooh. All right. About 1924, Cyril, you became engaged to a dancing teacher, but the affair was very short lived. Very soon after that, you met another girl at a dance. <laughs> Very soon after that, you met another girl at a dance, only to find that she had a regular boyfriend. But she su- suggested that perhaps you might like to meet her younger sister, Thelma. To this you agreed readily. On your first meeting, you were surprised to find that Thelma was... Only 15. Thelma's mother considered you were far too old for her daughter and would not allow you to take her out unless she was chaperoned. The chaperone, Cyril, was Nina Salt. Nina! I really believe, Cyril, if Mrs. Waddington had decided that King Kong was going to be the chaperone. You'd have agreed. <laughs> I'm so keen to marry Thelma. Well, I must say, we were both extremely unsophisticated, even for that day and age, as you remember. You're a child. But he did take us out. He did give us good times. We used to dress up in our very best, leave our coats in the cloakroom at the Royal Court, go on, sit in the orchestra stalls, eyes like organ stops and watching the stage, and every now and then, dipping into bags of Broken chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nina. A few years later, Cyril, during the depression in shipping, you were put on half pay, and you didn't find this very helpful at all, so you signed off and joined the Noel Coward Company on the stage management side for a run of bitter sweet in Manchester. However, you were soon only too pleased to rejoin your ship and take up the life which appealed to you most. By 1935, your young sweetheart of 1924 was uh, a mature young lady. And in 1935, you married Thelma, your loving and ever-constant companion from that day to the present time. Despite many problems and ill health, Thelma is still your number one fan. And dare we say it, sweetheart? Oh, yes! Shortly after your marriage, Cyril, you met someone on board ship, perhaps more erudite than yourself, who fired in you a tremendous interest and enthusiasm for optics. It seemed to you both an interesting and an ideal way of earning money. (laughs) You promptly set about learning all you could on the subject and studying extremely hard whilst at sea. You joined the Liverpool School of Optics 
and in 1937 passed the examination for the then National Association of Opticians and opened a house practice in Liverpool. Your first daughter, Sheila, was born in 1938, and because the Second World War had started, you and your family moved to Parkgate in 1940, where you opened a small practice. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon here in New York, and I've been sitting on my living room floor for at least an hour, trying to talk to my tape recorder. When first Janet told me she was making a party for you, I knew I couldn't get to it, and I told her I'd send you a tape. I didn't realize quite how difficult that was going to be. First of all, being the mechanical genius that I am, I had forgotten how the tape recorder worked. Next came the problem with what she say. Now, I am no speech writer. The only speeches I ever make are mathematical ones to unwilling students. And that sort of thing would hardly do for this great occasion. I tried singing Happy Birthday. But since I'm told that, that didn't work too well. So I have decided just to wish you a very happy birthday. I hope you and your guests are having a great time. I really wish I could be with you all. But you know my thoughts are with you. And as you are celebrating, I will lift my glass, as usual, and make a toast. <laughs> happy birthday to Sir Sid the Magnet, the best dad in the world. I got to stop there because that was significant. That was your mother, Robin. Yes, that was his firstborn, Sheila, which they mentioned previously. And uh, yeah, that was mom. Obviously, she wouldn't be able to make it. It's April, middle of the school term. And she was a math teacher. So she wouldn't have been able to go there. She went to England mostly in the summers in those days. Where was she teaching at that time? It's 76. So she was teaching at Ethical Culture in Brooklyn, which was on uh, Prospect Park West. Yeah, it's like, right, it's not there anymore, but... It no, well, the whole culture building is, but the school is no longer there. How many siblings does your mom have? Uh, she had three, um, on, two are still living. Uh, Humphrey wasn't alive at this point either, so it was only her and then Clive, who they haven't really mentioned yet. And, not yet, not yet. And Thea. <laughs> yeah, she was very much like, I can't do this, I can't do that, but I will just... Raise my glass to you, my wow. lovely father. <laughs> Mom did like, uh, you know, a little, little champagne in the afternoon. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. They taped themselves and they sent the tape yeah, over. Yeah, they must have mailed it to England, to Janet. They mentioned my Auntie Jan or <laughs> Yeah. How fascinating it is that the technology was so difficult back then just to, like, reach out in the 1970s just to say, okay, well... If I'm going to record this for my father, I have to, like, get this tape ready to go, like, months in advance. Well, yeah, because it, yeah. it took ages to get stuff across. FedEx didn't really exist as of, at least not in the entity it does today. Yeah. DHL doesn't start to what, like the 1980s? Yeah, exactly. They were the first overnight service. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were sending stuff mostly still by ship. And if you did send something overnight, you literally were sending it with a person. That was a job. People took packages from New York, went on a plane, held it in their lap, and delivered it to London the next day. Like, that was a job. That's so silly. <laughs> that's awesome. I, that's a job that I think uh, anybody would want if they had the opportunity, except it would be soul-crushing. Uh, no, my father loved that job. <laughs> that, was my dad, that was one of my dad's many he was jobs. A, he was a courier? Yeah, he went all over the world holding packages. He went that's to Russia. Man. He went to Japan. He went everywhere. It's pretty fabulous. I, mean, I think it's a pretty badass job. Yeah. You get lots of frequent fire miles. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's uh, before we we continue, just a reminder, everybody, that you are listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn, and uh, this week uh, I brought my wife in, Robin Ray, to discuss uh, a record of which was collecting dust in her house of which she grew up in, in Brooklyn, and her mother, who has since passed, had a record of her father's, aka Robin's grandfather's. Uh, 81st birthday. We're going to keep going and see what we can uncover in the next portions. Hello, Cyril. This is Ronald Smith. Pauline joins me in offering warmest and dearest congratulations to you on your 81st birthday. Whilst you are also thoroughly enjoying yourselves, we are performing at the Pier Pavilion Theatre in Pandemia. Within the National Health Service, you are esteemed and loved by your colleagues of all generations and they are not ignorant of the tremendous work you did on their behalf in the early days of the National Health Service and before and especially in ensuring the professional reputation it enjoys and demands today. For our personal friendship we are truly grateful May we conclude by saying happy birthday, dear Cyril, and may you have continued good health and happiness. <laughs> Due to the demands of the war years, Cyril, you put a manager in charge of your practice in Parkgate and joined Cashes, the engineering firm, with whom you supervised government work on ships for the duration of the war. And a very hard taskmaster you were in those days, Cyril, I've been told. Not content with your optical and engineering engagements. You also joined the local home guard, and I'm sorry to say, Cyril, you have been reported as being the most untidy soldier we ever had. <laughs> In the late 30s, you were an avid supporter of the Everton Football Club. In your capacity as an electrical engineer, you have been responsible for the installation of a public address system, both at Goodison Park and Anfield. I believe there was some difference of opinion between yourself and the Everton administration. And you became one of those people who transferred loyalty from the Blues to the Reds. Uh, to the Reds. <laughs> your many friends at Liverpool would say that this was the moment in your life when you saw the light. As press officer, you have seen many changes at Liverpool. The new stand and its accommodation, several managers, dozens of players, and during your period of office, you have worked with three excellent club secretaries. Jack Rouse, Jimmy McInnes, and Peter Robinson. In the words of Peter Robinson, we think the world of him. He is a press officer who is known by journalists throughout the world. There must be memory. 1961 and 62, Liverpool became second division champions. 1963 and 64, league champions. 1965, FA Cup winners. 1965 and 66 league champions and European Cup winners. 1972 league champions and 1973 the memorable game between Liverpool and Borussia Mönchengladbach. Liverpool taking a 3-0 lead in the first leg at home and winning 3-2 on aggregates in Germany on May the 23rd. This performance bringing the UEFA Cup to Liverpool for the first time. During the first leg of the game at Anfield, reporters came from all over the world and the press box swelled over into the main stand. But you, Cyril, coped with it all. 
An even more memorable event was the 1974 FA Cup final at Wembley. You and Thelma were guests of honour on this occasion, and to help you re recall the magic of that day, and perhaps even bring back that tingling feeling to your spine, we have a short edited tape of that game, concluding in the manner synonymous with the Liverpool Football Club cop singing, You'll Never Walk Alone. That is so authentic. Yeah. That that's Crazy. awesome. What, what what was it the the comment he saw the light? I think it was that was that was the comment. Oh, well, that he he'd been a fan apparently of Everton before that, which is another football club in sort of in the area. Okay. Um, and I guess he became he changed over to be a Liverpool fan, and eventually apparently became their press officer. So on top of being an electrical engineer, an optician, and whatever else he was doing, um. He also was the press secretary for the Liverpool Football Club, which, by the way, is now an actual full-time job that someone holds. Right. <laughs> like, they get, they get paid for. Where's okay. the president of the optician uh, Oh, yeah, the president of the optician society. Oh, and by the way, also helping to create the national healthcare system, which is a nationalized healthcare system in England. Did we get um, to that yet? Or was yeah, that... they mentioned it. I love how they mentioned it in passing. Like, literally, like a side note. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, um, you know, NHS was kind yeah, of. By help. the way, help create the NHS. Like, what? Um, yeah, he was. He At the time when the British government came up with the NHS, he was the president of the British Optician Society. So I actually found when I was going through the boxes of aforementioned many boxes of things, I actually found letters from some of the, shall we say, more left wing members of the British Parliament. That had been written to my grandfather about the NHS and about the ideas of creating it and so forth. It's so oh, wild. Okay. So apparently he makes the rest of us look really lazy is what I'm trying to get across. <laughs> I mean, yeah, basically. It's really great to be able to hear. I mean, it's great you have all this. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I love also set. that no one mentioned has ever mentioned this in my family ever, by the way. Like, there was... And it's not like the and Clive weren't in the room in this. So, like, but I guess as usual. I wonder if someone forgot. Even forgot it was there. Probably, I would imagine so. Let's keep going. We have some more audio to check out. This is John Keith of the Daily Express speaking, and I'm speaking on behalf of all my colleagues in newspapers, radio, and television. Not only to 
say to you happy birthday, but also to pay tribute to you and say thank you, a thousand thank yous for everything you've done for all of us over so many years. What, what you show, in fact, is a tremendous wit and a tremendous warmth. And warmth is not a commodity that is uh, overflowing these days. You are hospitality personified. You, the Eurasian one, incidentally, uh, we do not accept for one minute because uh, to see you so sprightly and uh, so full of uh, vigor and energy puts us all to shame. In fact, Cyril, we think that uh, one day you're going to jump out of the press box, dash through the paddock, leap onto the pitch, and line up alongside Kevin Keegan. We all hope you're going to be at Anfield for many, many years to come, because the old place wouldn't be the same without you. Well, all I can say, sir, from the ex-Prime Minister, is that I wish you all the very best. Nice one, Cyril. Back to Earth, Cyril. No doubt you will have forgotten many incidents over the last three decades, such as the occasion when you went to a match intending to deliver half a dozen pair of spectacles on your way home. At the end of the match, the spectacles were nowhere to be found. Certainly not in the press box, and you were convinced that some reporter had played a practical joke on you. <laughs> no such luck. The spectacles were eventually returned to you via the Corporation Lost Property Office, <laughs> having been found on the bus. <laughs> now we must, we must now move back into chronological order, Cyril. The days when you first lived in Parkgate. Shortly after Clive was born in 1944, you moved to Heswell, where your second son Humphrey was born, followed by your second daughter Thea in 1950. Clive. And here. Well, we're not going to say anything. We've said enough for the last uh, 30 odd years. As the children were growing up, you found yourselves increasingly involved in your work. You were particularly active in the NAO. National Association of Opticians, culminating in your being their last national president in 1956. Your name stands proudly as a full stop in the list of presidents, because following your year of office, the NAO amalgamated with the British Optical Association. You then saw in the newly introduced qualifying examinations yet another challenge which you couldn't resist. And although officially exempt as a registered optician, you sat the examination, passed with honours, and became an examiner. And all this at a mere 60 years of age. <laughs> Since 1959, you had been a patron of the Riverside Players in Heswell. Your first production with the Society, however, was The Love of Four Colonels, in which you played the role of the Mayor of Hetzelenburg. In April 1962, rapidly followed by a part in Home as the Hero and a spectacular performance as the moribund, bawdy and reminiscing blind Captain Cat in Under Milkwood, produced by Malcolm Ash, who is now in Australia, from whom we have the following message. Johnny Crack, Gossie Snow, Cat's baby in a milking tail, Flossy 
Riverside players, Riverside players, I think, um, which was the sort of amateur oh. amateur theater company on the world, and uh, I guess at some point they had moved to Australia, you know, as you do, <laughs> and uh, you know, normal, yeah, normal things British people like to do. 
they were recounting the many plays that they had been in with him and wishing him. Which they recorded uh, one and played a little bit. He, he was, you heard him acting in yeah, that Yeah, as a clip. captain or something. I couldn't quite figure out what yeah. they were trying to, what it was, but. <laughs> that gave me chills listening to that. He and was then, uh, very and then good. They, and then they listed some of the other plays that he'd been in with them. I, I have no idea who those people were. Not a clue. Well, they represented a totally different time of the Cambridge life. I mean, it had nothing to do with the offspring. It was simply no. uh, that of the... Because um, apparently my grandfather didn't have enough to do. He needed to go be an actor again. I like how he, how the rest of the kids, Clive and... and said absolutely nothing. Yeah, they went up and like, well, we're done. Bye. Clive also, ended up being in a lot of amateur productions um, and being an optician. Right. <laughs> taking over so the business. Clive and his father both uh, shared the right, op- op- optician practice. lifestyle as well as the acting. Riverside play. Yeah. yeah. And Theo's been on Carnation okay. Street for the past 30 years. Oh, right. It's right. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> or leaving Theo oh, out of it. No, not leaving <laughs> out. But you mean, she, did she want to talk at all on this? No. No. Well, Theo doesn't know. <laughs> She she wanted to be an extra in this as well. Yeah. Just be in the background. <laughs> She's been extra in Carnation Street for 30 years. They went like yeah. back to sit down. I just can't believe all these people that like they got these recordings from. I mean, from what I can remember, the stories of my grandfather is that he was pretty, and even my memories of him, I think he was pretty charismatic. And I think a lot of people really liked him. And, and yeah. being press officer of Liverpool in the 1960s and 70s was probably a pretty swell job I'm going with. Um, yeah, yeah. For sure. So it just sounds like your grandfather did everything oh. stereotypically British. Like he was an opt- optician. He helped form the NHS. <laughs> he needed a chaperone uh, with his future wife. Uh, well, because his future wife was fifteen, twenty years younger than him. So yeah, so <laughs> much of a yeah, chaperoning. 15. She was fifteen. He was thirty. Was he? he was thirty, I think. No. T- yeah. Oh man, <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> There's one quote that I really liked, and I think it was from one of the uh, Liverpool people. He said, warmth is not a commodity. I really like that <laughs> quote a lot. Right. Well, I think it also comes from the fact that he did not come from the best of circumstances. I mean, stereotype or not, I think that, you know, kind of everyone, the stereotype, at least in England, you know, is sort of the upper crust, which was his wife, my grandmother. Um, you know, so they're kind of a little bit cold and standoffish, whereas the lower classes are the ones who are like, you know, who are nice and welcoming and so forth. So I think he brought that sensibility to a, a class of people that didn't always have it. Do you see yourself, Robin, as capturing more of the standoffishness from the British side of your family or more of the warm parts of it? <laughs> well, I inherited, I definitely have my mother. My mother definitely went for the standoffish part. She really wished to be um, high-class British, but she married my father, who was very much like my grandfather. Therapists can have their fun with that. Warm and giving American... Well, I mean, he was essentially American. He spent spent most of his life growing up in Connecticut. He was American. You told me he was raised in England. He just spent a lot of time in... They spent time there, which was unusual in those days. You didn't go back and forth the way he did. I mean, you've heard this, I think, once, but I saw your ears and eyes perk up a few times because it's like you hear something you didn't hear before, Robin. Was there something that you heard over this that uh, stood out? Oh, they well, something the Americans won't get, but the very, very beginning they said that he was born within the hearing distance of Bow Bells, which is actually Mary, it's called like Mary Bow Church. It's in London. There's a famous song about it. (laughs) Allison, any thoughts from you? 
Final thoughts? And, you know, I have, like, a lot of, like, home video stuff and older stuff and stuff, some stuff with my grandparents. But this is, like, unbelievable for his 81st birthday to have, like, <laughs> I don't know what an accomplishment for so many people that you've, uh, you know, met and, under, and had in your life for so long. Yeah, when you manage to live that long and still be super, I mean, he was super active until into his 90s when he died. So. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. Well, I- I'm satisfied. I think this was uh, one of the more unique shows that we could possibly do. Not just for the fact that uh, I am uh, lucky enough to be joined in the studio by my wife, uh, but that uh, we were able to listen to a record of a birthday celebration from the 1970s before any of us were even an iota of an idea. <laughs> and furthermore, the man who what 1800s. I yeah, know, man, I grew up in the 1800s. It's pretty well, awesome. a little bit in the 1800s. It was 18. It, yeah. It, yeah, a little like 1890s. I think he was born. born. Yeah, it's I a mean, bit... that's still the 1800s. <laughs> it's still. It is still. Well, both my grandfathers were born in the 1800s. My father was practically born in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> We got to get out of here. Um, Thank you so much, Robin. I love you very much. And for uh, agreeing to be a a good sport, joining finally after five years of having to be uh, enduring, listening to to Lost and Rewound, you uh, now are uh, enduring uh, being in the studio to be a part of the show. That's pretty awesome of you. Allison, anything uh, you've got coming up other than officiating a wedding? I'm coming back to New York April 19th to the 29th. Boom. We'll see. I'll be live one Tuesday with you. Hell yeah. Well, we'll see you soon. Um, Cool. We will see you guys very, very soon. This is Lost and Rewound. Hear us again here next week, 3 to 4 p.m., right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. exciting letters describing a new role you were about to embark on. And I used to think, hmm, he's one of the few people I know who have broken down all barriers between amateurism and professionalism in our business. You had the experience, technique, and talent as a pro to choose to do it for love with the enthusiasm of a child. Many, many more years, Cyril. Keep in touch. All my love to you. To Thelma, to Jan, to Clive, Zero, your energies are unlimited. There are many people half your age who would never dream of tackling one quarter of the activities on which you thrive. We consider it an honor to know you and your family. And we all wish you many, many more years of fulfillment in the spheres closest to your heart. Cyril, Howard, William Cambridge. Variety artist, electrical engineer, actor, optician, husband, father, and friend. And grandfather. And grandfather. This is your life.